Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Crunch episode of the Mythos Manual. If you're looking for story, you won't find it here. If you're looking for fun insights and peeks behind the curtain as to how this game happens, you're in the right place. If you don't want spoilers, please leave. Uh, today, we're joined by, of course, Calder Kadavid, our game master. I'm Leslie Wisniewski. I produce the podcast. And we're sitting down with one of our player characters tonight, Paul Kruger. Hi, I'm Paul. Uh, I play Kafka, the bird person and fighter, and I'm the diversity hire. If we were paying Paul, that would be true. <laughs> but he's actually the only person we're not paying. <laughs> you mean the others aren't getting paid an exposure? <laughs> They're getting college credit. Uh, <laughs> not you, though, Cal. No. <laughs> I get fed corn chips. Just, Under the table. They just throw them at me. But of course, the real question is, is Kafka getting college credit for any of this? That depends on how well he performs, I think. What grade would you give Kafka for Avuba now that we're closing this chapter? Well, I mean, I don't know if we've ever exactly spelled this out in the show it's in the show itself but i think of this as kafka's semester studying abroad like if he survives this campaign kafka is definitely going to come back and talk to all of his friends about like oh man i went to the i went to the dragon's jungle it was a life-changing experience it was so different over there man like, <laughs> yeah, i think that's exactly what kafka thought he was going to be signing up for but i also think that kafka would be one of those people to be like now that I've met other people who are different from me, I feel like I can empathize with them and see them as real people. You know, I think Kafka... Here's the thing. I think Kafka is too stupid to be prejudiced. Oh, well, that's kind of nice. I think he's just like this very dopey, pure-hearted, shonen anime hero uh, who's stuck in a really horrible jungle world. Like, if somebody with the purity of Goku... Uh, was stuck in Michael Crichton's Congo. That's kind of where you <laughs> land with with poor Kafka. Um, in our zero crunch episode or crunch number, whatever it ends up being, we talked about how Congo from our book club was a reference and kind of an inspiration for part of this campaign. Paul was actually part of that book club, so Paul, I'm sure, sees little nods to Congo all over the place. Oh man! So we're leaving Avuba, Cal. As you reflect upon this period of time for your players and the characters at large, do you feel like they accomplished the goals that you kind of set out for them? And what were your goals for this kind of, uh, for setting the stage, so to speak, in Avuba? My goals for Avuba were to serve as a opening act. Okay, great. Like, so we're kind of getting to know everybody before we head into the more dramatic and intense parts of the story, I'm assuming. Because the jungle is like, it's been built up. It's the dragon's jungle. Who knows what's going to be in there? And Avubo was kind of this fun little like, well, let's kind of solve a little Scooby-Doo. Yeah, it was it was definitely a Scooby-Doo mystery. I, I wanted it to be that very much. Let the record show, and it does. I called it. Like, yeah. Like two episodes in, I called it. You, what did you call? I specifically said that it was going to be some kind of masked person trying to disguise, like, I think I said a shady land deal. It was actually a shady smuggling deal. Yeah. But, like, I did call Scooby-Doo very quickly. <laughs> we would have gotten away for it with it, too, if it weren't for you kids and your dumb goat. And your meddling goat. Hell yeah, my meddling goat. Actually, I was curious. Like, I have now I have now played Pathfinder with you for nearly half a decade. Yeah. Um, No, actually, more than half a decade at this point. <laughs> Holy crow. But, so, mm -hmm. how did working in a podcast format where you are structuring it for an outside audience and recording it, how did that change the way you approached the way you structure the story? Oh, uh, that's a pretty good question. I feel like 
things. Yeah. Well, I felt uh, mm, there there is a difference for sure because usually we play in like longer, like four to four to five hour chunks, and I think I allow us. I don't worry about as often as like making sure like there's good rises and falls all the time and like that long of a setting. Like I'll let us go on tangents longer and like our at our, our home games, like we can you know, really indulge in some, like, longer moments or kind of goof around a little bit more. I think I try to keep us a little bit more on the nose during Mythos Manual, for sure. And I always try to at least give us some semblance of, like, rising and falling action that I'm not always doing as quickly in probably, like, a longer day. But other than that, I don't think I changed too much otherwise. I think it made me it made me think about doing some like you'll see as we go forward but we do some like shorter dungeon work like stuff is a little shorter a little more bite-sized concepts but i kind of was doing that for this campaign anyway well and but, correct me if i'm wrong but you're kind of you're still in the process of writing the game like you have you don't even know the ending that's true yourself. yeah i didn't i didn't write the, i haven't unlike like our last my last couple of homebrews or i would really overwrite them or i wouldn't overwrite them but i really plan out the entire thing really really far in advance mm-hmm. um and i like there would be options for the players to kind of walk them in it and like touch the world and do things to it but it was much more like a skyrim experience where they were kind of walking along and they could encounter things and like and like explore them but like there wasn't as much like response right on it, my part. it was it was less you have less i guess uh conversation options yeah, is kind of a way maybe of thinking of it, or like the know. maybe like the the PCs have less direct impact because I know one reason why you aren't getting so far ahead is because of the amount of impact that the player characters have on the NPCs and on the story. Right. Yeah, that is exactly like I, I gave myself because like there's a bit of a time part to this kind of game where we instead of like instead of exploring like like a big map or something like that where it's kind of about like how do you guys spend your time and like what what do we do over time like how, what like kind of resources do you build and like what relationships get furthered and things like that is kind of the the bigger concept i think for this game than yeah and, anything else i've written and done. and speaking to the the npc of it all paul are there any npcs that you've met so far in avuba that you're very much like oh my gosh i can't wait to go on an adventure with this person um you know i don't know why but i just made a character choice that Kafka has this outsized affection for Malik that Malik doesn't totally understand, and that Paul the player also does not totally understand. Um, I I think part of it is just that uh, one of the things that Cal did to give us a bit of a reference is that he kind of celebrity cast all of the NPCs, um, and he chose Lakeith Stanfield from uh, Atlanta and Sorry to Bother You as mm-hmm. the ch- the actor of choice for um for Malik and Lakeith Stanfield just has this wonderfully weird and eccentric energy even when he's being relatively straight-laced like the part that he plays in those two scenes of get out that he's in right mm-hmm. um and i just really am drawn to the image of this doofus like Kafka who is very pure and surprisingly wise at at different moments but generally kind of a dumbass um hanging out with somebody that is kind of eccentric, but trying to put on a front of respectability like Lakeith Stanfield would if he were actually playing this in like the movie of mm-hmm. the, of eyes in the mist. Yeah. Uh, 
And that is, as a little bit of trivia for you listeners out there, that is why every single time Kafka comes up to Malik, and this will go on for the rest of the campaign, every yeah. single time, he always greets him with, sorry to bother you. Oh, that's fun. Yes. What a nice little reference. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't, I'm not totally certain the other two players have caught on yet. I Cal, don't think so. Cal rolls his eyes really hard every time. He knew right away what I was doing because Cal always catches on very quickly. And <laughs> I got into your cancer. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, some other fun NPCs we experience in Avuba who are not going on the adventure. I'm talking mostly, of course, about the infamous, incredible Duke Luca. That scoundrel Duke Luca. I've heard he's the world's greatest musician, not to mention incredibly handsome. Okay, I'm really excited to talk about this. Cal, can you please speak to the inspiration for Duke Luca? I mean, like, I don't, I don't think we ever <laughs> came out and said it right away, because I, I knew it was going to be a kind of the Scooby-Doo mystery. And I, I think actually, like, a big tonal kind of influence, even though this is kind of a jungle and, like, pulp campaign, I wanted to be spooky adjacent. Tonally, I really enjoyed uh, a series of unfortunate events. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I said correctly. Ladies and gentlemen, Cal has never gotten the name of that show right. There, in his defense, there are a lot of words, and they do go in a very specific order. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> I don't care for that show's name. No, but tonally, that's kind of kind of striking for some of this, where it's like kind of scary adjacent. Yeah, and sometimes genuinely scary. Yeah, and sometimes genuinely scary. And I mean, I think that when I realized what you were doing with Duke Luca, that was especially fun for me because. Like listeners at home, I I enjoy a very close friendship with our two esteemed hosts, and we actually watched all three seasons of a series of unfortunate we events did. together. And beginning from like season one, we were all occasionally making this joke of like uh, being in a D and D game, and it's like you go into a town, and a shopkeeper says hello, roll a perception check. Ah, dang, I got a two. It's okay. It's Count Olaf. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's, it's very obviously it's Count very Olaf. Obviously the bad guy. Yeah. So then, like realizing that that's what was going on. And by the way, like I want to speak for a moment mm. to you, Cal gave us the clearest indicators of what was going on with the oh, DLE thing, yeah. and because like watching a series of unfortunate events and seeing like Mr. Poe and all the other adults. Of of the week that the kids are saddled with the Baudelaire <laughs> orphans um, and an enormous and, fortune. And, yeah <laughs> and their enormous fortune uh, and <laughs> and watching these adults completely miss this very obvious Count Olaf disguise and being in your seat at home and thinking how the fuck can these accomplished adults who are all clearly people of influence and power miss that this is a very distinctive looking man in a very shoddy disguise and then our entire adventuring party completely missed all the incredibly obvious signs you put out there that our Count Olaf stand-in was responsible for the haunting even when we knew that the haunting was itself a fake so yeah. I'm, what I'm saying is I understand Mr. Poe now yeah <laughs> now he's very relatable now, now you can know with certainty that you are a very accomplished adult <laughs> Yes. Yes. And a very fortunate disaster. <laughs> so good. Um, well, now you guys are setting off and embarking down the river, heading towards your dig site. Um, looking forward to seeing what kind of horrible um, bunch of happenstances. I'm trying to do a bit on like series of unfortunate events. It's really not working. So I'm just going to breeze right by that. Um, okay. We're going to just see what kind of terrible <laughs> things happen to to the party. To the, um, yeah. A bunch of terrible stuff. A <laughs> Lime snickets, a bunch of terrible stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <A bu> <laughs> shit happens. <laughs> the book. <laughs> Why are we 
running that campaign. <laughs> By Lime Picket. There it is. Oh, Lime Picket. L- lime Picket's shit happens. <laughs> shit happens. Get over it. Shit happens and then it keeps happening. <laughs> That's honestly kind of true. <laughs> that is super accurate. Um, we, we can't go too far down this. We, we all have too many feelings about a series of unfortunate events. It's true. Let's talk about the jungle. What do you want to talk about the jungle? Oh, all the things, really. Um, let's. Are, let's are there see. fun in games? Are there fun in games in the jungle? No, 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 none. Just death. Just death. <laughs> Just death awaits you. Death and disease. Yeah. Axel Rose lied to me. Yep. <laughs> Axel Rose is a liar. I'm coming out and saying it on this podcast. I just want to say that I saw Axel Rose's Twitter feed the other day, and apparently, he instead of writing out the word "and," he just writes the letter "n." Every single time he would normally write and conversationally. I didn't realize how negatively I would react to that, but I just reacted really negatively inside to that notion. Oh, no. I absolutely love it. That is commitment to who you are. I guess so. Jeez. Well, here's a question. So Kafka definitely seems like a pretty standard dude who has his wants and his needs and knows what he has to do to get them. Um, but do you see him arcing out and like, what are your thoughts about his arc? Do you plan on him having one or is he someone who changes those around him for the better? Oh man. <laughs> Maybe Kafka is like Chance the Gardener where everybody looks at Kafka and they see what they need to see at the time. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, I mean, I think what the real thing with Kafka is, is that Kafka went to magic school to please his immigrant parents who worked very, very hard to give him this opportunity. And he doesn't want to disappoint them. And he's terrified of what happens when he disappoints them because he knows he will. When he inevitably disappoints them. Yeah, because he has so many times in the past, but they keep giving him chances. And it's not like as dumb as he is, it's not like he doesn't understand that. He values the sacrifice. Like it's difficult to emigrate from the Omiyoto Islands all the way to the far west and start over in a place that doesn't really even have a whole lot of Tengu. And maybe you're the only Tengu growing up in your class and you don't necessarily think you're different, but all the other kids treat you like you're different. And they turn their beaks up at you and then they Mm. laugh at you for calling their noses beaks. Um, Kafka, in, in this particular case... Uh, having just hit the river, Kafka is literally and figuratively adrift. He mm. is at a point in his life, like a lot of us were in college, where he has to make a lot of decisions about who he is, and he doesn't have his overbearing Asian parents uh, directly overhead anymore to answer those questions for him. And I think at this point in the campaign in particular, he's really struggling with that, which is why he's focusing on like trying to get that A, because yeah. that's like – Back throughout his entire life, getting that A was generally what led to good things. So the A is what he needs. And in that case, the A is Archibald or Mm -hmm. his academic advisor. The letter A brings a lot of good to Kafka here. Oh, that's so interesting. And I think that, yeah, Archibald was like, it's a good like stuffy name, but I also picked it because it starts with the letter A. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. That's so cool. (laughs) This is the kind of silly, stupid writerly stuff that... I no one will notice, but I kind of I kind of get off on sneaking this shit into into the campaign. No, I think definitely whenever you're playing a role play game, you have to give your character the things to like 
point them in the right direction. Your character needs to have a true north so that if you're ever like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Your answer is always what gets me closer to that North Star, what gets me closer to the A or to having all the money in the world or, or whatever it is that your character really values. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's really smart to have. And it, it's a good insight for people who are wanting to play role play games. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what Kafka's deal is, at least right now in the campaign. It's all about the A, appeasing authority. Kafka needs the approval uh, of people that hold a position over him. Um, and he tries to please them. And as the campaign goes on, I want him to start to play more and more against that. Um, in particular, as he begins to develop a friendship with another A, Anushka. And, oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, because Kafka also has strong feelings about parenthood. And it's not going to escape his notice that Sur- Suresh Sumadra is, you know, uh, he tries his best, but he's not a very good father. And... Kafka, despite his difficulties with his parents, at least understands what a good parent is and has a lot of strong feelings about that. Um, and so I plan on playing those parental immigrant going for the A feelings out further and further. Awesome. Great. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Kafka being from the Amioto Islands because in Cal's role play world that he's essentially been building correct me if i'm wrong for the last like 10 years well sort of yeah i mean like kind of like you're developing pieces of it and they all kind of exist in the same universe yeah i have it's always been kind of considered like my own little homebrew world but it's always just what i always kind of like about a homebrew world is that it can kind of be whatever you want it to be the fun thing was always that you could then kind of connect your campaigns by being like oh like so and so is related to so-and-so from other game or you can make fun little ties and connections that way and it's a a little kind of a fun little reward for like people who have played in other campaigns to kind of see that kind of crossover like i think that kind of like sparks a little bit of joy just for people but all of my campaigns have always been very local to like a certain area like all of amioto took place in like a certain region of like kind of a far east setting yeah and it's it seems like so far like each of your areas have had really distinct themes. Like, as you mentioned, Omiyoto was definitely much more of an Eastern adventure. And this adventure kind of takes m- place in the Dragon's Jungle, which, as far as I understand, is kind of a, a combination or a melting pot of all the different types of quote-unquote jungle-type areas you could think of, like Africa, India, South America. Um, I know that as we're kind of building the sound design for some of the jungle areas, we're also pulling a lot of noises from Costa Rica because that's a jungle environment that's close to the ocean um, and kind of combining all of those elements into one place. Can you talk a little bit about some uh, some like instances where you see kind of the crossover? I mean, we're setting off on a river that definitely feels like the Amazon what are some other kind of elements that you're that you're pulling from for the Dragon's Jungle? Uh, okay, well, for the Dragon's Jungle, I kind of pull a lot of influences. I, I don't try to stick to one thing because I'm like, I don't. I, I didn't grow up in a jungle environment. I've spent very little time in a jungle myself. Have you spent any time in a jungle yourself? I think I, I've been in Mexico, and in parts of Mexico, I think might be jungle. I don't actually know if that's true. You've been in the urban jungle. Well, yes. No. <laughs> but so so sad and disappointing. No, you haven't been to the to the concrete jungle. You've told me you've never been to New York. Uh, is there only one? Yeah, it's New York, concrete jungle where dreams are made of. There's nothing you can't do. I thought it was I love a, New York. I thought it was a concrete jungle. Like Chicago could also be a concrete jungle, right? Or is it too organized? 
It is on a grid system. It is. Mm, maybe that is the difference. The jungle is a little less, a little less organized. Everyone strokes their chin and mm, there it is. Maybe that, that might be the division. Hi, listening audience. We're all, we all have ties to Chicago. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I liked the idea of using the pyramid kind of design and look from like Mayan kind of Aztec, ru- yeah, yeah, kind of ruins, <laughs> and I liked using. Like the kind of gorillas that I think are only native to Africa. And then like there's a bunch of like Indian stuff, which is kind of coming up on the river. In addition to what like the, the, the whole concept of like the Leroy colony that they're going to right away was very much inspired by the imperialist uh, Britain, like building a bunch of like, you know, giant ass Victorian mansions in the middle of the Indian jungle. Which are like fascinating to look at now because they, they just seem so out of place, and I think like, that image really stuck with me. And that's kind of you'll see that going forward. And I I love the notion that like that the dragons the dragons jungle has teeth, right? Like Leroy was kind of the only colony, and it got d- destroyed by by something. By something. And the dragons jungle has very much been like, nah, yeah, stay the fuck out. Yeah, it's very yeah, it's very foreboding for those of a to people who aren't like. Welcome there. Part of this backstory of like the dragon's jungle is that all of these like beast kin were driven out of this other neighboring country, which had like a big like xenophobic push against like animal, animal folk essentially and like Mm -hmm. pushed them all into the jungle. And so from there, they've all been able to little to, um, live in peace amongst themselves. Like, you know, like, you know, it's all got its own politicalness kind of happening, but it's like a refuge away from all like the, the more human world. Yeah, and it's fascinating because, like, the I guess the myth is, or the the notion is that there's a giant dragon that's kind of just ruling over this jungle. Yes. Paul, taking bets right now. Do we see this dragon in this campaign? I don't know, so I'm gonna also bet. I'm gonna I'm gonna say no, or if you do, it's a very fleeting glimpse, like the ho at the end of the very first episode of Pokemon. <laughs> it flies overhead as you leave the jungle. Ooh, that's a, not a bad ending. Did we... I'm <laughs> sorry. Did we just write the end of the first volume of you the know, Mythos that, Manual? Th- here's the thing, though. That's the good ending. Oh, oh no. <laughs> that's the 100 completion ending. Oh, you oh. see the dragon fly overhead, and it, and it gives you a thumbs up. <laughs> oh. oh, beans. We're never going to get that ending. That is kind of, That does sound like the best ending. Yeah. No, I honestly, I think if we see the dragon of the dragon's jungle, the titular dragon, our party is kind of fucked. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have the kind of diplomacy necessary to, like, talk with a king dragon. No. I think he would spare, like, Kafka. He would yeah. certainly spare Archibald, because he knows that Archibald serves something far greater. That's right. And I, darker. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Archibald's <laughs> origins. Because this can be, like, what? Let's, what is Archibald, Paul? For you, because he's part of your character, so I feel like you kind of have a little bit of a say in what Archibald is or isn't. Well, Archibald is a goat in a school project. And that's it. You say that with like a look of like, hee hee hee. I think that's about right. I think that is kind of the long and short of it. I think Archibald is ultimately just kind of a goat. But I think the joke also, and then what makes it work is that like, you know, the 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 place that all supposed to be from, which is Cherimov, is like this vampire ruled, dark, kind of gothic, mm-hmm. uh, Eastern European flavored kind of country or well kind of city and so there's the the idea of like you know like this like kind of creepy university 
has like the mascot of a goat and then you know goats are used a lot in like human sacrifice or not human sacrifice sacrifice. and yeah and they have like there's a phrase i try to work in every single episode if possible and that phrase is horrible goat eyes because have you ever looked a goat in the eyes they're horrible yeah they're horizontal they they stare at you fixed like they're seeing through you and seeing every choice you'll ever make and judging yeah. you accordingly and goring you upon the horns of causality. <laughs> and, uh, like, I mean, I have explicitly told Cal that like, I kind of like the idea of throwing out little hints that there could maybe be more to Archibald or maybe there are not. And we should never have a definitive answer. Yeah. Like maybe he is truly like the, the black harbinger of something from beyond the reaches of the dark tapestry, or maybe he's just a goat and goats are creepy. You, the listener at home, you will never know. Yeah. He's a dumb goat. He, he's a great goat. <laughs> he's awesome. He's got his little hooves and his little horns. He's always, he, always getting stuck on small branches in a tree. He is. And he's eating like tin cans and boots. Where are we finding these cans and boots? <laughs> oh my gosh. I love Archibald. Yeah. Um, well, Paul, as we enter into the jungle, what what do you think Kafka's biggest fear, besides like failure and disappointing his parents, what do you think his big fear heading into the jungle is? Well, you know, it's funny you mention that because like the central joke with Kafka is that Kafka fears uh, a jungle full of hostile creatures and ancient curses and unspeakable cosmic horrors less than he fears admitting to his parents that he got a C and dropped out of magic school. Ah. Like, which is a feeling that I can relate to. Like, it's easy to come up, I think, with a high concept for an RPG character, but you need to find that emotional hook in. And my emotional hook in was a fear of disappointing people. That is what I have in common with Kafka. More than my Asian heritage, more than my proclivity for fighting, more than the fact that I dropped out of magic school too when mm. I was 19. It's, <laughs> it's ridiculous that they expected me to make a decision about my future when I was a teenager. But, uh, like, I think the fact of the matter is Kafka would face pretty much anything rather than look his parents in the eye, which is d- difficult because they're crow people and their eyes are on the sides of their heads, uh, and tell them that he got a C. When you think, well, if Kafka walks out of this jungle, do you think he'll be ready to tell his parents the truth? You know, yeah, I think I think if I do this right and I find the right character arc to play out, and a lot of this is going to depend on role play opportunities. But if I find the right, the right levers to turn and the right opportunities that I can make Kafka's character go in that direction, that is where I would like him to go. Like. In my in my other life, I write books, and one of the things that I like to do with the characters in my books is I like to present my central characters with a question, and at the beginning of the book, uh, if asked this question, they would say no, and at the end of the book, when presented with the same question, they would say yes, and journeying through the path that took them from no to yes, or vice versa, mm-hmm. um, is how and why I write books. And I want to try and do the same thing with Kafka. It's what I try to do with all of my RPG characters. And I find that to be a really fun and simple way of playing. Yeah, well, that's great. I definitely hope that Kafka lives to see his parents' disappointed eyes yeah. as they turn their heads rapidly back and forth so he can look into them <laughs> at the it, same time. It helps us see predators. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, before we wrap up, Paul, do you want to plug your book? Because like, I think you totally should. And I'm springing this on you without asking about 
you about it previously because I know you would have said, no, that's not necessary, but you should plug your book. Um, okay. So I have two books to my name right now. The very, very first one is called Last Call at the Nightshade Lounge, and that one is about a secret society of bartenders who fight demons with alcohol magic. Um, and that one came out in 2016. Uh, my next one, it is called Steel Crow Saga. It is coming out on October 1st of 2019, and it is my examination of the scars that colonialism leaves behind as examined through the lens of Pokemon. Well. It's very good. It is very good. And yeah. we're not just saying that because we're friends with Paul. We're no, saying that. he's written garbage, but this is very good. <laughs> <laughs> so we can say with uh, certainty that this is very good. <laughs> Guys, it's okay. I know I wrote garbage too. <laughs> we all had to read Merely Players. It, <laughs> it was so fun. Well, maybe someday you'll see that book, viewers, but maybe not. Uh, but I think this is a good place to kind of wrap up. Paul, thank you so much for thank joining you, us. Thank you, Paul. Uh, yeah, Cal, thanks for running, of course, per usual. And the two cats that are here, thank you for being kind of quiet so we could get through this. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to another Crunch episode of Mythos Manual. Woo! That's good. Thanks for tuning in to the Mythos Manual. Be sure to check us out on our socials at Mythos Manual or our website, mythosmanual.com. May all your rolls be 20s.